My name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you after the service, especially if you're visiting uh, for the first time this morning. Um, we're beginning a new series today. And if you've been with us for a while, then you know that we looked at the Gospel of Luke for over a year, and then we uh, looked at the, the book of Acts briefly. Uh, but man, a lot of those sayings of Jesus were really kind of controversial and, and tough. So I think we decided we were just going to go for a real home run you know, nothing controversial at all, so we're going to do Genesis. I like that you guys get my pastor jokes. It makes me feel really, really good. So we're going to start at the beginning. Let me read our Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 1 for us, and pray, and we'll get started. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation. Seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault to the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening And there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing in which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I ask that as a result of your word being preached this morning and and of us partaking uh, in the table, that we would leave this place filled with awe, that we would become more fully human as our worship of you deepens. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. How do you make a baby? The science class version is this. Reproduction requires two gametes, one from each type of sex, forming a haploid gamete, thereby passing along genetic material to the descendant. It's getting spicy. That's pretty boring. How do you, how do you make a baby? If you were in a cooking class, it would sound something like this. You take one part male reproductive stuff, one part female reproductive stuff, combine it together, stir vigorously, let sit, bake for nine months, remove, and let cool. (laughs) And then some of you repeat the process right afterwards. I'm not really sure. (laughs) How to make a baby, according to the courtroom, Well, according to exhibits A through Z, the court finds a 98% probability that Mr. X is the human father of the child in question. The defense has failed to produce an adequate alibi for Mr. X on the night in question, thereby given the nature of these claims. Mr. X is hereby ordered to pay child support, blah, 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 court is adjourned. But, But seriously, how do you make a baby? Well, when Johnny moved back to his hometown after college. He got a job working in his dad's hardware store. And one day, a girl comes in who's needing to replace some switch plates in her her living room, and they get to talking, and Johnny recognizes that this is Susie. This is a girl that he went to high school with, and wow, has she grown up and changed. She took his breath away. His, His heart was up in his throat. Her eyes were cutting him like diamonds, and it was as if he was outside of himself, and time just slowed down to a crawl. It was as if he could smell colors and he could see the sounds of her voice. Well, somehow he found within him to to actually talk to her despite all of his nerves and they ended up in a whirlwind courtship. There was love and engagement and then a wedding and Johnny felt alive in an indescribable way. 
The colors of autumn were more vibrant. When they had snow on their first New Year's Eve together, it was an entirely new adventure. Summer afternoons were now magical as they would stare at the clouds together. Susie would stare at the clouds, and Johnny would stare at Susie's eyes, and he would say, tell me what you're thinking about. I want to know all of your dreams. Now, the first few ways that I described human reproduction are factually accurate, and I'm not going to continue with that little story just so we're all at ease here. The first few descriptions were factually correct, but bare facts are like soggy cereal compared to the five-course brunch that is being laid out for us in our text this morning. And I start this way because we need to remind ourselves that language is at once extremely flimsy and extremely concrete. But even in, in the most clear expressions of truth, captured in language, they are nothing more than signs. They're just representations of the actual thing. So my wife and I just took a road trip to Bozeman. And when we see on the road sign, Bozeman, 80 miles or whatever it was, the city of Bozeman, my destination was not in that word. It was not in that sign. If that was the case, we could have just gotten out of the car right then. It would have been pretty boring. But we were actually going to Bozeman the place, not the word. And, and the sign of the word on the sign just points to the real place that we were heading. So this morning, I'd like us to take some time to answer some questions. And the first is, how are we going to read this text? And when we start to see how to read the text, we're going to ask, what does this reading tell us about who God is? And what does that in turn tell us about ourselves? So imagine that you were, you're back in 10th grade, you're reading some science homework about asexual and sexual reproduction, but instead of getting that, that first gamete and haploid gamete definition, you get someone's diary entry about how they fell in love. Or imagine you finally had time to sit down with a good book, and so you sit down and you, you start to read this novel that, that is dealing with deep themes of pain and loss and heartbreak and love and rebirth, all within the story of this couple falling in love and starting a family. But when you open the book, all it says is, reproduction requires two gametes, one from each type of sex, forming the haploid gamete, thereby passing along genetic material to the descendant. In both cases, you would be completely disoriented. In reading this novel, you are not coming to the book subconsciously asking the author to tell you how sexual reproduction works. You were hoping the author would be able to give you a compelling perspective on the deeper mysteries of life, love, and love lost. Which is to say, we come to texts with assumptions about what questions they will help us answer, about what they are meant to evoke in us. So it's important to remind ourselves that our Old Testament reading this morning is not from a science textbook. It is not from a courtroom transcript. It is not a recipe book about how to make a world. It's ancient poetry trying to capture the inexpressible with words. So many of us may be coming to this text assuming that it will, will give us a set of propositions, a slew of information that we can maybe file away and use in conversation or argumentation later. Many of us come to this text preoccupied with questions regarding modern science, what are the mechanics of creation? Were there really 24-hour days? How does this account corroborate or contradict the story of evolution? 
Others of us may come to this text preoccupied with questions dealing with history, or even more specifically, maybe even historiography. Was this written down as, as an actual history in the, in the way that we do history now? When, when did these events happen? When was the text itself written, and who wrote it? Now, these questions are not bad questions, and they're important for, for us to think about together and to wrestle with together. But at some level, these are nonsensical questions. It's like asking, how is the bathroom, instead of where is the bathroom? Because what we're trying to do when we ask these questions is to force an ancient text through a modern grid, and we're trying to twist it and wrench it into something that it's not. We're trying to force it to answer questions that we find pressing. And the result is that we actually just walk away from this sort of text feeling totally confirmed in everything that we think, everything that we think we know about the world and who we are, because we haven't actually allowed the text to sit over us. We rather impose our own ideas upon it. But this morning, what we're doing with this text is theology. We're not doing science. We're not doing history. We're not doing law. And as such, we are asking ourselves primarily questions that have to do with who God is, with his nature, with what we can learn from him by his creation. And hopefully, we'll allow this text to bring out its own sorts of questions of us rather than impose our questions upon it. And we will be the ones reshaped not the text. So what does this text tell us about God? Now, I should just say right at the beginning here that that some of the best Christian theologians throughout history have spent their entire lifetimes studying chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and writing on it. So uh, I have about 15 minutes left, I think. We're we're not really going to get too deep into a lot of the things here. So what I want to do is just hopefully... uh, give us a sense of how we read this text theologically and how these various elements actually teach us about who God is. And so then as you go into your community groups, uh, just with your own families or your own personal study, you can try to use these principles uh, in your own study of this in, in more detail. But the first thing that this text tells us about God is that God is a mystery. Rather than ask ourselves, how did creation work, or, or how long were the actual days? Were they 24 hours, or is there a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2? I would rather ask us to wonder together, what is the point of creation? Why, why creation instead of not creation? What is the meaning? What is the telos? Just as the sign on a road points to a place, what is creation actually pointing to? What is the direction, the goal, the end result of creation? Well, St. Augustine was one of those theologians who spent basically his entire Christian life thinking about Genesis 1 and 2. And the more that he thought, the more that he studied and wrote, the deeper he found himself being enfolded into a mystery. And it's the mystery that the Apostle John writes to us about in his gospel, that in the beginning was the Word And the Word was God, and what he says later is that God is love. It's a mystery that God actually knew all things before they existed. It's a mystery that creation took place in an instant and yet is never-ending. It's a mystery that in eternity past, there was the triune God and nothingness. It's the mystery that in the beginning, God is both inside and outside of time. And it's the mystery that God could bring forth anything, something, all things, out of nothing. Ex nihilo. This text tells us that God is a mystery. 
but God is also love. And one of the things that will help us understand this text is to actually study some of the other ancient accounts of the ancient Near East of creation. Most other cultures at around the same time had their own stories of how the world began, and yet the differences are absolutely shocking. Most of the time, the universe is described in these other accounts as already somewhat existing. There is no other god in any of the other ancient cultures that actually creates everything out of nothing. All the other stories, something already exists. And, and most often, the, the earth itself is the, the scene of some sort of battle. It's basically viewed as a battlefield. And in fact, one of the accounts, there are these two deities fighting each other. And the one deity wins out over against the evil god and uses his corpse to make the earth. That's, that's the creation story of, of one of these other cultures. So what we can see is that in these other stories, nowhere is creation described as good. There is no pleasure being taken in what's being made, and love has absolutely nothing to do with it. But within the breadth of Christian Scripture, we see that as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another in pure, unadulterated love and bliss, they are basking in the joy of one another's presence. Creation The bringing of something out of nothing is based in the overflow of that love, of the love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for one another. So Augustine actually suggests that the phrase, in the beginning, is actually in the capital B beginning, and that that beginning is actually the Son, that in the Son, God created the heavens and the earth. And so here the triune God lays upon their cosmic blanket of nothingness, whispering to one another, tell me what you're thinking about. I want to know all of your dreams. Or we could say that God, the master chef, walks into his never-ending kitchen of nothingness and whips up a batch of all that is. Beauty born out of love. What is the point of creation? It's love. Why creation rather than not creation? It's love. The love that God had within himself brings out creation. And the great mystery is that God had no need to create. There was no lack within the Trinity that that the creation fulfills. He was perfectly happy, perfectly at peace. His joy, love, and satisfaction within the Trinity were full. Creation or not creation doesn't change that. But it's been said that the universe is to God as wine and chocolate are to us completely unnecessary, and so unbelievably delicious. We love it. God is love. But God is also life. When the very first verse tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, that is a poetic use of basically trying to say that God created everything that is, all that is. And the rest of the next two chapters just give us more descriptive detail of that all that there is. But again, contrary to the other creation accounts, God here is described as the source of all life. Many of the surrounding nations had gods who controlled various elements. There was the sun god, or the wind god, or the god of fire. But the god that is presented to us in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Christian scriptures, is a god that is the source, creator, sustainer, and overseer of all things. And again, the Apostle John picks up this in in his brilliant recasting of the creation story that we read together this morning in our gospel reading when he says that in God the Son was life. God himself is 
life. Not only that, but God is relational. This text reveals to us that that not only is God relational in himself, in the Trinity, which we see very faint echoes of in this text, but he is also now in relation to his creation. Rather than simply standing outside of created things, God himself experiences them. Consider this. Consider the idea that God knew everything before it existed. And yet when he creates it, he actually sees that it's good. Obviously, this is an anthropomorphism. This, this is one of those things where we, we take human things and put them onto God. Because as we know, God is a spirit. He does not have eyes in the same way that we have eyes. But what, what the poetry is trying to evoke here is that God actually experiences his creation. He's experiencing it in time as good. He relates to it. And then we see in verse 2 that the Spirit of God is brooding over the waters. This is the same word that will later be described of of a mother hen brooding over her chicks, which is exactly how Jesus describes his relationship to Israel. That he broods over them, gathering them under his wings. This is this is God at the very beginning, covering the earth with his protective care. Even within the way God sets up creation, there is this constant reference to his own covenantal character, to the fact that he is in relationship. Notice that he separates light from darkness and then causes them to dwell in relationship with each other. He separates water from land and causes them to be in relationship with each other. There are fish for the sea, birds for the air, beasts for the land, and as we'll see next week, man for woman. He sets night and day in relationship with each other. God creates things and then sets them in right relationship as a way to describe to us that he is a relational God, that he is in covenant with his creation, with his people, and now we can see with his church. And finally, God is the thing signified. Now, I realize that that sounds a little uh, philosophy 101, and there's much more that we could say, but, but I think this is going to be kind of the way that I can hopefully try to sum some of this up. So what do I mean when I say God is the thing signified? Well, uh, I have a friend who, when he and his wife first met me, uh, I found out later they referred to me as Bearded Craig because I reminded him of his brother. And so he would call his brother Craig and say, oh yeah, I met this guy Steve, and he, we, you know, we call him Bearded Craig because I had a beard at the time. Well, when I found out, I said, no, 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 no. I'm not Bearded Craig. Craig is Beardless Steve, Right? I am the referent, not, not the one who's, who gets, you know, referred to as something else. This is basically what I mean when I say that God is the thing signified. If, earlier I pointed out that language is symbolic. Okay, so, so it's filled with signs that point to things. So when I say the word water, you think of the actual liquid. You don't think of the letters W-A-T-E-R. Well, maybe now you do. So the words that we use are signs that point to real things. I say the word table, this is the actual table. But what creation actually reveals to us is that those real things are themselves signs and symbols for the real, real thing, which is God himself. Throughout Scripture, God is spoken of in many different ways. He's called a lion, a light, water, bread, life, love, an eagle, a tower, a rock, a fortress, which is to say that all of creation symbolizes who God is. Just as a painter or an author or a musician has a specific style 
that we could recognize with familiarity. So God's creative work, absolutely all of it, stylizes who he is. Which brings us right back to point number one, that God is a mystery. Because he creates sea monsters. He creates plants that have seeds already in them, which means that somehow death is already strangely present. He's a complex God. It's not just as simple as saying, well, he's beautiful or he's powerful. It is so much more complex than that. I wish that we had more time where we could really delve into what all of these different things point to. But we're going to end by just trying to think about if this, is, if this is what this text, if this is what creation reveals to us about who God is, then what are we to know about ourselves? And this will be really, really quick. The first is that we were made for worship. We were not made primarily to figure God out. We were made primarily to worship him. Secondly, we were made to mirror his beauty to his world and the beauty of his world back to him. We, we were called and created, and we'll see this um, probably a little bit more next week, but, but the human race was created to be priests upon God's earth. When he says that he created us in his image, what he's saying is that we are now his signpost to the world. And finally, and perhaps most controversially for, for folks of our, most of our uh, theological ilk, is at some level, even though we all know what's coming in two more chapters, and the fall happens and everything gets broken, at some level, we are good. And God's world is good. And he takes pleasure in it, even in the brokenness. Even in the rebellion, he still takes pleasure in his world. And so that's why John takes so much time and care to mirror this chapter with his own beginning of the gospel in which he then begins to explain that God not only created the world, but he so loved the world that even when the world was running away from him, he sent his only son to come and reclaim it. And that is what we celebrate when we come to this table. We are celebrating the reality that even though we know brokenness and the story of brokenness is right around the corner, that God still finds pleasure in his people and he now finds pleasure in us because we have been marked out with his son. We have been washed in the blood of the lamb and so now we are able to come into relationship with God. That is one of the most beautiful things that we could possibly imagine. So let's contemplate that together as we confess our faith and come to the table. Let me pray for us before we do that. God, we could not possibly um, uncover the mysteries of who you are. It would take an eternity. And you have created us for such a thing. You have created us with minds to think, to ponder, to question, and to wonder. And what a beautiful mystery it is that even in all of our technology, even in all of our scientific understanding, it is simply a reflection of you, of your character. I ask that as we come to your table that we would be fed by your Spirit, fed on our Savior, and that we would leave this place with a renewed sense of awe, with a sense of your own playfulness over creation, your own love, your own declaration that this is good. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.